I'm very happy to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Peter Moss. Peter Moss has been a reporter for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. His previous book, Love Thy Neighbor, about covering the Bosnian crisis, won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. His latest book is Crude World, The Violent Twilight of Oil. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Peter Moss. Thank you all very much. It's fantastic to be here, and I just need to start. And I want to start by thanking the Skirball Center, but particularly also Zocalo Public Square. I second absolutely everything Gregory said about his organization. I encourage you to support this organization and all the other ones like it because they're so vital. And the last thank you I want to make before I get into things here is for my mother, who is... Where are you, Mom? There. with about 100 of her closest friends, and that also is very nice. What I want to talk about tonight is oil in my book, but also a particular property that I associate with oil that isn't incredibly normal, which is invisibility. Now, we think of oil and we think, well, what can possibly be invisible about it? I mean, we all talk about it and we fill up our gas tanks with it and we know that it costs $2.50 a gallon or whatever the price is today to fill it up more. I'm in Los Angeles. But there are other prices of oil, and there are parts of these prices that we really don't see, and it's not just the carbon that's admitted into the atmosphere when we burn gasoline and other forms of fossil fuels, but there also are these prices that occur in the countries, many of the countries that supply it to us, that don't become kind of rich as we think they might be, for whom oil is not the blessing that we might think it is. And so what I want to do this evening is talk about some of these invisible prices of oil that we don't really see or think about that much, and then talk a little bit also about some of the solutions for them. And I want to just begin by kind of explaining the origins of the book, which is, I wrote my book about the war in Bosnia, which was a book that was really kind of about the, the epiphenomenon of war. I mean, what it was like to be shot at, what it was like to watch people being shot at, the, the suffering and, and the events that one sees during wartime. But then after I wrote that book, after it came out, I decided that what I wanted to try to do for my next book would be to write about some of the causes of war, some of the causes of, of poverty, some of the causes of wealth, and what could that be? And I kind of came upon the idea very quickly of, of oil, because it really was kind of everywhere that I had been. When I was in Bosnia, people would say to me, if only we had oil, the Americans would come and save us. And then when I was in the Middle East, people would say, if only we didn't have oil, we wouldn't get invaded so much. So there, there was all these kind of you know, ideas and myths and uncertainties around it that I wanted to get to the bottom of. And initially, the way that I wanted to do it, and this was in 2001, in the spring of 2001, I thought that what I would do, because oil itself is just this substance, what we're really talking about is what people do for oil, how countries are changed, how lives are changed. How do you bring that alive as a writer? How do I make that real? And initially I thought what I would do is I would get jobs in different parts of the oil industry and then kind of write about the oil industry and the world of oil from the inside. So I'd get a job, you know, swabbing a deck on an oil tanker, I'd get a job in a mailroom at Halliburton if I could, and, and I would get, first off, a job as a roughneck. And so I went to Lafayette, Louisiana in the spring of 2001 to try to get a job as a roughneck. Now, I know you're all looking at me saying, this... <laughs> this is not roughneck material. And so it led to really events that could be, you know, a, a great comedy one day, wherein I would go into this, these interviews. I went into this one interview situation with about a dozen other wannabe roughnecks, and I was clearly the only one that had showered in a month and had a full set of teeth. And, and then the, the, I was the last one whom the recruiter asked questions to, and he took my application form, a very basic application form, and looked at it, and then looked at me and said, University of California at Berkeley, which is where I graduated from, because there weren't a lot of Cal grads there. <laughs> and then he then looked at me and said, do you work for one of the unions? So I did not get that job. I was not going to get a job as a roughneck. And, and in all seriousness, it actually was, was quite beneficial that I did not, because if anybody here has worked in oil fields, you know these are actually incredibly dangerous jobs. And I spent some time as a reporter in oil fields and just saw how dangerous the jobs are and that it's no place for amateurs like me. So, 
I was then kind of confronted with the, the, the question of, okay, well, how am, I, how am I going to do this? Because I had this problem. It was a great opportunity and a great challenge. And I just want to read one, a few sentences that kind of give you an idea of the challenge that I, I faced and, and talk about then how I tried to overcome it. How do you coax secrets from a liquid? To know a person, you talk to him. To know a country, you visit it. To know a religion, you study sacred texts. Oil defies these norms of interrogation. It's a commodity that is extracted, refined, shipped, and poured into your gas tank with few people seeing it. It has no voice, body, army, or dogma of its own. It's invisible most of the time, but like gravity, it influences everything we do. So, at the same time that I was trying to figure out how am I going to make oil come alive, oil itself became alive as a much more important international issue after 9-11 and then with the invasion of Iraq. And so I was able then to just go at it directly as a reporter, as I usually would, going to Iraq, going to Saudi Arabia, going to Russia, going to Nigeria, going to Venezuela, going to Ecuador, going to all of these countries that supply us with the oil and seeing how people's lives were affected there, how political destinies, economic destinies, environments were shaped by this substance. And it was kind of by going to these places that the issues and the facts and the myths of oil were all kind of clarified for me in ways that very often I didn't expect. So, for example, I went to Nigeria and Nigeria is one of the biggest oil producers in the world. It provides us with a lot of oil. Um, it has a particularly light, sweet type of oil that is easy to refine and particularly prized. And since the 1960s, when Nigeria began exporting oil, it's earned about $400 billion in revenues. But the amazing thing, and this is just the, what's called sometimes the paradox of plenty, is that despite all of this wealth coming out of Nigeria and some of it going back with these revenues, about eight out of 10 Nigerians live at or below the poverty line today. One out of five Nigerian children die before they reach the age of five due to malnutrition and other diseases associated with. Nigeria is a very corrupt country and there is a war in Nigeria. And it's not the usual kind of war that, between states that we're familiar with and that make the headlines all the time. It's not even the kind of war like there is in Iraq where there's like a very clear insurgency and then there's the government that they're fighting against. In Nigeria, in the Niger Delta, which is where this oil comes from, you have different militias who are fighting against the government and the army troops, and also fighting against each other. It's a really complex conflict system. And so in order to write about it, and as a writer, I kind of just try to make things real, to make people care, I went there. And I went to Port Harcourt, which is the largest city in the Niger Delta. And in order to get permission to go into the Delta, into the creeks where the oil comes from and the war is going on, I didn't have to get permission from the government. I had to get permission actually from the guy who was like the alpha warlord at the time. And there was a truce at that moment. So I was able to actually visit him in his hotel in Port Harcourt. And it was one of these strange situations where I go to his hotel and we sit down in a room in the hotel. And one of the first things I do is I put my digital tape recorder uh, between the two of us to record the interview that we we're gonna have. And he immediately looks at it and says, that's fantastic, I would like that. <laughs> And, and, you know, what do you say in a situation like that when you need the digital tape recorder and you also need the help of the warlord? And so I said to him, well, I, I need this to do the work properly to tell what's going on in the Delta, and also you can buy it on the Internet. And he was like, oh, okay, fine, then it's okay. <laughs> and, you know, one often kind of encounters these strange situations, but in any event, he gave me the permission to go, and the next day, he assigned one of his aides to take me into the Delta. And so we drive for two hours outside of Port Harcourt to the end of the road. We get in a canoe that has a little outboard motor that breaks down every 30 minutes. And we, we begin this just surreal journey where we're going into the creeks. And the, in America, you don't have like large amounts of flares going off from, from oil facilities because flaring is pretty much not allowed except under particular circumstances. As we went through the creeks in Nigeria, there are these just massive flares going off from the ground and there were pits of oil that were also on fire and it was, it was as though the earth itself was on fire. And we go deeper into this delta area and we stop at a village where there had been an army attack and there had been attacks between militias and the fighters there who were supposed to be loyal to the warlord that was giving me protection. They didn't even want to let us off the canoe. They were so angry at not just the government that had attacked them, but also at the warlord who was their leader because he was living in Port Harcourt. And it became a very tense situation that finally was resolved with a little bit of negotiation. 
We go further into the delta, and we go into this, to this little village called Sangama, which is on a creek. And it, it is a picture of you know, third world destitution without any running water, without any electricity, without any healthcare schools or anything of that sort. And the first impression that I had when I arrived there was this kind of fecal stench because there, there were no laboratories except for the creek that we were approaching on. And the remarkable thing is that right across from this village, which was, again, the picture of third world destitution, there was a Shell oil facility. This is where we get some of our oil from, natural gas too. And this facility was, as all these little oil facilities are throughout the Delta, surrounded by, first off, a ring of army troops, and then second off, a ring of electrified fence. And then behind that electrified fence, you have manicured lawns. You have oil facilities that are kind of the epitome of, of first world sophistication and technology. You know, I've been into these facilities. They have electricity, they have you know, Wi-Fi connections, cafeterias, air conditioning, the whole thing. And it was just the most incredible dichotomy to see that, you know, on the one hand, you had on one side of this creek this remarkably well-run, beautiful oil facility that was, of course, protected by these government troops. And then the other side, you had absolutely nothing from the people who lived on top of this oil. And so it was one of the, the kind of um, dichotomies that I tried to bring out in this book, that there's this oil that comes from some of these countries that provides us with this wonderful lifestyle that we have, and the people who are there, actually, not only don't get benefit from it, but they suffer because they end up fighting over what little they can get in the way of benefits from the government or what little they can get in the way of tapping oil from the pipelines. And I just want to read a very short three-paragraph passage of this journey that I made with the local tribal leader, whose name was King Tom Mercy. Our canoe moved through mangrove creeks in which there was no screeching of monkeys, no hippos or crocodiles in the water, no butterflies floating in the air. I began counting the number of birds, because wetlands are usually filled with them. I noticed one, a white egret, but not another until five or ten minutes later. In these wetlands, the wildlife was all but gone. Between the war and the pollution, it seemed to be both a killing zone and a dead zone. We found a fisherman using a pole to propel his leaky dugout. He had been fishing since the previous day, but had not caught nearly enough to feed his family. In his canoe, there were a half dozen fish the size of large minnows. Wherever I go, there's pollution, he said. All the fish have gone to the ocean. His gear consisted of a hook at the end of a string that was attached to a stick. He could not even afford a fishing rod. This journey required, for comprehension, the imagination of a science fiction devotee. We passed a small island that was known as Little Russia. The origin of its name wasn't clear, but the island served a distinct purpose. It was where prostitutes lived, servicing the needs of soldiers and oil workers. On its shore, a young woman stood in the shade of shacks, fronted with empty beer bottles and off-kilter picnic tables. A sign over one of the shacks announced, food is ready. The girls waved. Shell and other firms claim to abide by first world standards in these places, but that seems a fairy tale, the punchline to which was announced by a sign at a flow station that was dripping fluids into the water. Keep Nigeria safe and clean, it said. The king looked at me. How can we expect to catch fish, he said. His anger was no performance. Let's go, he ordered. We soon passed a patrol boat with unsmiling soldiers. You see how we live, he said. I also went to Iraq. If Nigeria was an example of, of a country where there was poverty and internal warfare and enormous pollution over oil, Iraq to me was a place where I would be able to perhaps explore this question of, do we go to war over oil? And it seems a very obvious question that's easy to answer. And so in 2003, I went to Kuwait, and I was one of these crazy journalists who, in March of 2003, went to the Hertz office in Kuwait City and rented an SUV. And then on March 18th, when the U.S. Army advanced into Iraq, drove my SUV over the border. Um, my mother would not have approved if she had known. <laughs> and I then hooked up with the Marine battalion that went to Baghdad, and it arrived in Baghdad, and was the battalion, actually, as luck would have it for me as a correspondent, that took down the statue of Saddam Hussein. And it was actually, of course, a very highly photographed moment, but on the scene, it was actually a very confusing time. There were Iraqis who were celebrating, but there was also one who was attacked by the crowd because somebody said he's a spy for Saddam, and he had to be saved by a Marine. And then I went on the next day to the Ministry of Oil, now, the Ministry of Oil, it's just 
a few miles away. Baghdad at the time, as you'll remember, was chaotic. There was looting going on, there was violence. It was dangerous just to go out in a car to anywhere, as opposed to just staying where you were in your apartment or your hotel. And I went to the ministry, and it was surrounded by American troops. It was safe. Nothing else in Baghdad was safe. And I stood outside of the security perimeter that the American troops had set up, and there were Iraqis there who worked in the ministry who wanted to get inside. And they were just basically tugging on my sleeve, saying, you see, the ministry is surrounded, the ministry is safe, the Americans have the Ministry of Oil, but they're protecting nothing else. The National Museum, which I'd driven by, was being looted at the time. And this is one of the kind of... It was a dramatic image that seemed to tell us and tell me everything I needed to know about oil. But this is one of the problems, I think, of, of invisibility of oil, is that sometimes we don't know what to see or what to look at, so we see only one or certain things without the totality. And I went across the river to the Dora Oil Refinery, which is the largest oil refinery in Baghdad, actually the only oil refinery in Baghdad. It was not protected. And it was protected finally after a few days when some American troops arrived, and it was saved from the looters only because the kind of rascalish Ba'athist refinery director turned out to love his refinery more than he loved Saddam, and he organized his workers as a defense force. And when I went there, it was a remarkable institution because it had been built 50 years ago. If you want to know about America's kind of intricate and long-standing relations with Iraq and its oil, you just need to go to the Dora refinery. It was built about 50 years ago by American and British companies. Uh, in the conference room in the administration building, there are oil portraits of all the refinery directors, and the first 10 refinery directors were American or British. The time clock that workers at the Dora refinery still punch into is an IBM time clock which doesn't only tell you about the U.S.-Iraqi relationship, but also kind of the workmanship of IBM machinery back then. <laughs> the director of the refinery was working with an 82nd Airborne captain named Tom Huff, who was assigned to help protect this refinery. And it was so chaotic that Tom Huff, an 82nd Airborne captain, was just having to help run the refinery, figure out how to get supplies there, how to keep the looters at bay, etc. And almost every day when I was there, he would look at me at some point, and he would say, you know, I don't... I don't know what the Bush or the American government policy is because nobody has told me what I'm supposed to be doing here. All I know is that I'm running a refinery, but I was trained as an airborne officer to jump out of planes and kill people. And, and he was proud of this because that is what airborne um, rangers are, 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 are trained to do. But he was having to improvise quite a bit. And the fact that this refinery actually wasn't defended terribly well and there wasn't a lot of attention to it showed me the complexity that sometimes, although a war in this case, the invasion of 2003, certainly oil was central, that the fact that not every facility, and in fact, a lot of the facilities were not defended, indicated to me that maybe it wasn't the absolutely only thing. Because in 1990, when we had the Persian Gulf War, oil was absolutely the only thing, and the Kuwait's oil facilities, which Saddam had left in flames, were within 100 days producing oil once again. In the case of Iraq, absolute chaos. And so it made me realize that the way to ask the question isn't whether a war is about oil, but how is it about oil? And that there can be not just oil as kind of the only component, but other components as well. In addition to going to Iraq, I went to Equatorial Guinea, which was a, a lesson for me in the deep political compromises that we make in order to have the oil that we want. Equatorial Guinea is a country in West Africa, 500,000 population, that found oil just in the 1990s, relatively recently. It's been ruled by the same man for about 30 years. His name is Teodoro Obiang. He came to power by overthrowing his uncle and then having his uncle executed. So you may have a dysfunctional family, but it's <laughs> nothing compared to what, what, what's going on over there. The first several hundred million dollars of revenues that went to Equatorial Guinea were actually put into secret bank accounts that were under Obiang's control at Riggs Bank in the United States. I went there a few years ago, to find out what happened to the money and what the situation is for the people there. In the last election in Equatorial Guinea, the ruling party won, and this is just in the past year, 97% of the vote. That's the kind of country it is. Obiang is regularly on the top 10, even top five lists of the worst dictators in the world. And I lasted in Equatorial Guinea for eight days, after which I was expelled. And my expulsion on charges of being a spy revealed to me these terrible compromises that put me and myself into a, a compromising position. The information minister begins calling me and texting me, saying, I must see you now. 
And in a country like that, when the information minister says, I must see you now, as a journalist, you kind of know what this means. I agreed to meet him at an outdoor public cafe. And he says, and he's upset. The president is mad at you. Your activities here are not correct. We're expelling you. You have to be on the next plane out of the country. There's no way to really kind of argue against that. We talked. I had 15 minutes to pack my bags. One of his aides took me to the airport. He shows up at the airport. I'm in the departure lounge. And now he is absolutely furious. And he's saying, you are a spy. We know you're a spy. We're going to take you downtown for an interrogation, something you don't want to have happen in a country like that. And he begins demanding that I open my bags for another inspection, which I do. But too slowly for him, he starts slapping my arms. And so I know things are beginning to get out of control. And I then said something to him which stopped him dead in his tracks. And this is about oil, not about me. Because what I said to him was, if you touch me again, if you take me downtown for an interrogation, your president is never going to the United States of America again. And the US government is going to be very upset with you. Now, this was a total bluff. <laughs> I had no idea. Again, I don't want to drag my mother into every story, but my mother cares <laughs> what would happen to me, but I had no idea about the American government. It was as though I shot him with a stun gun. He was like, get out of here. Kind of threw the bag back at me, and the next flight that went to Cameroon, I was on it. I was out of the country. But it revealed to me, and it made me kind of uncomfortable about the compromises that we make, because this is a terrible regime. But the fact is that the companies that extract the oil from Equatorial Guinea are, for the most part, American companies and natural gas. And the relationship that Obiang has with the American government, Condoleezza Rice called him a good friend, is very important to him. Dictators need legitimacy in order to continue ruling over their people. They also need to be brutal. And so I was able to kind of wave my American passport, virtually speaking, saying, I'm an American, you can't touch me because you're tied to my government. And it got me out of jail, almost literally. But it's of no good for people of Equatorial Guinea because this is still one of the worst dictators in the world. And the United States is virtually supporting it with the companies that are there and the recognition that we provide to them. And so, as a, as a writer, what I try to do with situations like that, because you might read about it in a newspaper here or there, but try to make them vivid and bring them alive. And that's why I wrote this book. Another, another situation that I tried to write about is the money. One of the things about oil that makes it difficult to write about is that it's money and money's invisible. And so I wanted to write to talk to oil executives about how do you do the transactions, how do you bribe? <laughs> um, and I couldn't get Lee Raymond, the chief executive of Exxon, to talk to me about that or anything. Um, but I did talk to um, a really interesting fellow named Jim Giffen, who is a larger-than-life character. He was the right-hand man of the Kazakh president during the 1990s. He negotiated basically all the contracts on behalf of the Kazakh government with the American oil companies, etc. And in 2003, Giffen was arrested at JFK airport um, and indicted on bribery charges, $80 million in bribes, the accusation is that he took about $80 million from the companies that were coming in for the Kazakh government, put it in his pocket, shared some with his undicted co-conspirator, who was the Kazakh president, Nursultan Nazarbayev. Now, in order to you know, report a book like this, I kind of end up... 90% of what I do isn't in the book, because there's too much, and I follow up a lot of dead ends. And I was sure, in trying to follow the money and talk to Jim Giffen, that this was going to be a dead end. Because I went to the federal courthouse for one of his hearings. I went there early, hoping that he would get there early, and I would somehow get through his lawyers and be able to introduce myself. I get there early, he's there, I introduce myself. The first thing he says to me is, are you also looking into what the governments are doing? I say, yes. And then, by that time, his four lawyers have kind of alerted themselves to the fact that their client is talking with a journalist, and they say, you can't do this, and they give me their card. And then I talk later on, days later with the, the lawyers. And they say, our client can't talk to you because he's been indicted for $80 million in bribery. The trial's going to be whenever it's going to be. And I said, just tell your client I want to talk to him, and I'll talk to him off the record. And they're like, well, okay, maybe we'll do that, but it's not going to happen. 
And about a week or two later, my phone rings at my home office. And the voice says, this is Jim Giffen, and this conversation is not happening. <laughs> and I say, yes, it is, and of course it's not. <laughs> and we then talk for a couple of hours, and then at the end of which, he agrees to see me in his office, and I go to his office. And in his office, there are pictures of basically every American president, him with every American president, going back to just about Richard Nixon. I think he also had one of him with Richard Nixon. And he ended up letting me write about some of what he told me, which is in my book. And the reason that I'm explaining this is because one of the things that he said to me is, look, why do you think I was there? Why do you think other oil executives are in this country, these countries? It's because the American people want oil as cheap as possible, and the American government wants us to get it as cheaply as possible. They just want us to get it. And this wasn't just theory on his part, because the remarkable thing about Jim Giffen, and the reason he hasn't gone to trial yet, he was indicted, arrested in 2003. $10 million bond, he posted it like that. The reason he hasn't gone to trial yet is because his defense is, I wasn't just working for the Kazakh president, I was also working for the CIA. The US government knew everything that I was doing. He's mounted a public authority defense, and in order to have the trial take place, he needs to first get access to intelligence agency documents that prove or disprove his relationship, which has been pretty much proven, actually. The intelligence agencies aren't releasing it. And this all sounds very fantastic or whatever, and it sounds like a, a plot from Syrian. I don't know if some of you saw it. Giffen is actually the model for this kind of sleazy lawyer in, in Syriana who gives this famous little speech, famous to oil addicts like myself, where he says, you know, the sleazy lawyer, corruption, why are you complaining about corruption? Corruption is what keeps us warm. Corruption is why we win. And, and the remarkable thing about this scene and Giffen's relationship to it is that Giffen was the one who drew my attention to the fact that that character was based on him. <laughs> He's not ashamed of what he is alleged to have done because he says this is in the national interests of the United States and the United States government wanted me doing it. Why are you blaming me? So the invisibility problem of oil sometimes is that we look at the interesting, most dramatic, shiny things like the $80 million bribery um, uh, uh, indictment against Jim Giffen and think there's the problem. And that's maybe part of the problem, but there are problems deeper than that, which is that he's there with support and involvement of the U.S. government. And the U.S. government is involved there because it wants to have oil for America that's as cheap as possible. And so I tried in, in the book to just bring all these things alive to make people understand it in a very kind of visceral, visceral way. And there's one more thing that I, I kind of want to talk about in terms of, of these places. It's that we also have an issue of supply in terms of peak oil. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this, but it's the idea that actually, rather than just having huge amounts of oil available, we're at the peak and we're not going to be able to get any more out of the ground. And, and if that's the case, then you know, we're going to be heading for an economic crisis again because oil prices are going to rise quite a bit. And again, in trying to get, pierce this veil and make visible what is kind of invisible, how much oil is there, the countries that have it don't really honestly talk about it. I went to Saudi Arabia. And I tried to see the oil minister who refused to talk to me, which is, you know, he's a busy man, but I, I, I'm pretty good at getting my foot in the door, and I've talked with a lot of people. I couldn't get my foot into his door. He wouldn't let me into the ministry. I couldn't even talk to an intern on the phone. On the last day when I was in Riyadh, the minister's spokesman finally agrees to see me, but not in the ministry, only in my hotel, and he just comes there for 20 minutes and says, either you believe us or you don't believe us. We don't care. And this was part of, kind of, to me, the, the problem of, of transparency, that we don't really kind of know what's there. We don't know the costs of oil, financial, supply, political, environmental, as much as we should. And so what I was trying to do in this book is, is bring these things alive, make them as visceral as possible so that people wake up and, and understand all of these prices. The last kind of anecdote I want to talk about, an issue I want to talk about in terms of oil's effect, also relates to Saudi Arabia in terms of, you know, I have a line in the book where I say every dysfunctional oil country is dysfunctional in its own way, you know, with great apologies to Tolstoy. Um, I, I, I stole his best line and totally ruined it, but it, it worked for the purposes of my book. I went to Saudi Arabia also to try to figure out how oil shapes Saudi Arabia, because oil doesn't make all countries poor. I mean, Saudi Arabia is a rich country in terms of incomes have risen quite a bit since they found oil. But 
there are other effects. And one of the effects that we all kind of know about is that a lot of the oil money that went into Saudi Arabia also went in to fund Islamic extremism. And I wanted to kind of understand, well, well how is it that young Saudis end up being attracted to this idea of violent uh, Islamic extremism? And so I was able to talk with a, a young Saudi named Muhammad. And he was a jihadi, a fighter. And I didn't talk to him in Saudi Arabia, actually. I talked to him in Iraq. This was in 2005. I went back to Iraq several times after the invasion to, to do stories about the situation there. And I was in Samarra, which is a Sunni city in the Sunni Triangle. There was a lot of fighting going on there. I was doing a story about these Iraqi special police commandos. And one day, one of the Americans who's working with the, the, the Iraqis says to me, we just captured a Saudi. Do you want to talk to him? which presented a strange kind of dilemma for me as a journalist because talking to prisoners is a very tricky situation because they are under an incredible amount of duress and, and you can't really have an honest interview because if they say the wrong thing, they could be in trouble. But it was also, uh, for me, kind of a, something I couldn't refuse because he was a, a real, actual Saudi jihadi and I wanted to find out what brought him to this country. So I agreed. And they brought me into this detention center in Samara, which had been a library. And it was now a detention center, and we all heard about the abuses that have occurred. This was an Iraqi-run detention center, although there were Americans working there as advisors. And I, I'm brought in there, and the first thing I hear are screams. And I don't see the people who are screaming, but I hear the screams. And I'm led into this little office, and there's a, two chairs and a desk, and there's blood stains on the side of the desk. They bring this young Saudi in. He's about 20 years old. His head is bandaged, and he sits down. And I just start asking him about his life. I say, how old are you? Where did you come from? He came from Dahran. Where did you go to school? King Saud University. Did you graduate? No, why not? Because I, I really had no hope in, in this country. There were no jobs. One of the ironies of oil is that it doesn't create work. A lot of money goes in, but the oil industry is very, very, very capital intensive. There's an unemployment problem in Saudi Arabia, as there in it, is in most countries that depend on oil. He said, I had no job prospects. I don't like the royal family, they're corrupt, there's no democracy. And I started listening to the mullahs, and I became inspired by the idea of jihad and fighting the infidels. And so I infiltrated myself, joined a cell, and came to Iraq. And I said to him, well, why, why do you think the Americans are here, and, 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 and why are you fighting here? And he said, it's all about oil. And whether or not we think it's all about oil, there are a heck of a lot of people who do and to take action against us because of that. And I don't think we realize sometimes the connection, even in affluent countries, and Saudi Arabia is, generally speaking, somewhat affluent country, how much oil has shaped people's minds to an extent where some of them, not all of them, some of them are willing to take up arms against us. Another reason to kind of look at what sometimes is invisible, take account of it, and react to it. And I just want to conclude with a little bit of hope because I know this is kind of a dismal conversation sometimes, or it can be without the references to my mother. <laughs> and one of the problems with oil is, is the secrecy that surrounds it. I started off with this invisibility thing. All this money, all this power that is held and disposed of as whoever holds it wants to. And so there's a very big, interesting movement that's developed in the last few years for transparency in financial transactions. There's a kind of government organization called the Extractive Industries Initiative, which is trying to get voluntary codes for companies and countries that have resources to publish contracts and money flows. There's an organization, an NGO organization, called Publish What You Pay, which kind of is what its name sounds like, which is it wants obligatory codes, wherein companies, not just here in America, but in all the other countries, have to publish every payment that they make to countries that have resources, and the countries that have the resources have to publish what they receive. And if you can kind of have this light shine, then you know what the amounts of money are, and it becomes harder for people to steal it, and because you have more people aware of the money, the decisions about what to do with it, hopefully, will be better. It's not an absolute solution, but it would help quite a bit, and it is beginning. And one other kind of final transparency aspect is kind of relating to, to our own conversation about it. You know, famously before the invasion of 2003, Donald Rumsfeld said, this invasion has nothing, literally nothing to do about oil, which is 
bad comedy. But in one way, I kind of sympathized with him because it's impossible for American politicians or very difficult for them to talk honestly about oil, to admit even a little bit of the truth that, yes, we do invade countries for oil. Maybe not entirely, but we do invade them partially for oil. And we do get into bed with these dictators in Equatorial Guinea and Kazakhstan and Sudan, if that's possible, because of oil. And if we can kind of allow it, transparent discussion over here, it's not just transparency in these dictatorial countries, but over here, then we can make hopefully more informed decisions about, okay, these are the true costs of oil. And therefore, either we accept them and we live with it, we live with the blood that may be mixed in the gas tanks, or we begin to make the changes that we know we need to make, kind of the post-oil future, the alternative renewable energy, the conservation, the efficiency. And so my job or my desire with this book was just to make people aware viscerally of this invisible aspect, the intransparent aspects of oil, so that when we feel it and we read it, we then do something about it. So with that, I'd like to do something with all of your questions, so please ask them. Hi, I'm just wondering about your thoughts on President Karzai as a former consultant to Unical, uh, the pipeline that they're interested, the, U the U.S. is interested in to come from Kazakhstan down through Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that, you know, oil is a big factor in this war in Afghanistan. I, what, what you're referring to is, is that President Karzai of Afghanistan was a consultant to Unical. I forget, a, a, a 10 years ago or something like that, when there were discussions about a possible pipeline that would go through Afghanistan, et cetera, and he was involved in that, uh, which is factually the case. There's really kind of like no country in this world practically and no leader in this world in some ways that kind of hasn't been involved or isn't involved in some way with a pipe, possible pipeline. There are plans for pipelines everywhere at all times. And, you know, so many people are, are consultants at one time or the other to oil companies. So, I mean... Yes, he was involved in that. Yes, there were discussions about pipelines through Afghanistan, but I don't think that that means that therefore the invasion, the, 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 the 2001 invasion of Afghanistan was about oil in order to secure Afghanistan so that we could run a pipeline through it. I just think this is part of the thing where, in terms of not asking whether a war or whether Afghanistan or whether Hamid Karzai is all about oil, but just how they're about oil. Because yes, it's an issue, but is it the issue? In a case like that, I don't think so. In other cases, yes, I think so. I hope that begins to get at your answer. Did, your, did you have a chance to look into, and does your book discuss what's happening with countries where they have been highly um, reliant on the money that they get from oil, but that amount of money is going down and is likely to go down uh, even more in the future? Well, sure in Oxborough. Sure, this gets at kind of this trap door, actually, that, that oil can be for countries that depend on it. Because when times are good, when oil prices are high, I mean, it's, it's like you're in a casino. You know, there, Venezuela in the 1970s, and you know, even now in some ways in Russia, these countries live very well when there's a lot of oil money coming in. But what happens when the price goes down? Or what happens when the production plateaus or goes down? Then you have real troubles. Because... You have no other options. One of the things that oil does is when it diverts kind of like the government becomes about oil and managing the oil or taking the, taking the oil money, the manufacturing sectors can atrophy, the farming sectors can atrophy. And just for kind of microeconomic reasons that I, or macroeconomic reasons that I don't even want to go into here because it puts me to sleep sometimes, but it becomes very difficult to actually have a diversified economy when you just depend so greatly and there's all this oil money washing in. And so when it washes out, what do you have? Not much. You know, one of the actually interesting kind of explanations of why the Soviet Union collapsed when it did was that, of course, the Soviet economic system was totally incoherent, but that actually it was the decline of oil prices in the 1980s that kind of withdrew all this hard currency that the Soviet Union had been depending on because the Soviet Union is a major exporter of oil and Russia still is, of course, famously today. And that it was actually the decline of oil prices that was really the, camel, the straw that, that broke the camel's back. And it could be the case in the future with Russia now. I mean, it is a superpower now, energy superpower. And income-wise, things have risen there. But what happens when the production plateaus or when it goes down? What's going to be left? 
you have a very authoritarian political culture, which has become more so as a result of oil and the concentrating powers that it has on the government. And you don't have a diversified economy the way that perhaps they'd have if they weren't so focused on oil and thought that they could just live on oil and natural gas. Uh, President Obama ran on a campaign of change. Right. Has there been a change in, with the new administration in oil policy and energy policy compared to the Bush years? I mean, there definitely has been. I mean, the, you know, conservation is no longer considered a personal virtue. It is considered something that everybody needs to do, that we as a country and we as a world need to do. And so there are also, obviously, policies that are related to that. I mean, instead of opposing the Kyoto Protocols and climate accords, the Obama administration is trying to craft them. And it, its main kind of problems tend to be actually with some of the domestic constituencies here rather than some of the partners overseas, which actually want us to go further. But so there is a change. But we still have kind of political realities in this, in this country to deal with. We have coal states to deal with. We have the fact that, you know, it takes a lot of money to invest in new infrastructure for power grids, et cetera, and that, you know, people don't want to necessarily drive smaller cars and it's expensive to buy a better Prius or whatever, things of that sort. All kinds of difficulties that make it hard, perhaps, for the Obama administration to do what it wants. But I'm not a policy wonk. And, and when I try to be a policy wonk, I really get boring. Um, so. <laughs> So I, I'm a writer, and, and what I try to do is just, you know, write about what's going on now, what I see, make it visceral, so that, so that kind of the policy people can say, okay, this is actually the world as it is. We need to do something. And that, then they can, perhaps if they want to, like, use the evidence that people like myself provide them in order to persuade people, okay, look, you may not like this gas tax, but we really need to do that, because the gasoline that you have in your tank now is from Equatorial Guinea, Nigeria, or one of these other countries, and the people there are actually suffering, and that's wrong. This is Steve Bauman, an old family friend, so I hope this is going to be a softball. <laughs> you paid me correctly. Uh, in your, uh, at the end of your speech, uh, which we appreciate very much, you started to speak about uh, the future, alternative sources, renewable mm -hmm. Solar, every time I get in my convertible, mm -hmm. I think, why the hell isn't my car being run by the sun? Yeah. Do you have any evidence uh, of the U.S. or other oil companies resisting those changes? I don't know if we're resisting it. We're just not embracing them as strongly as we need to and moving towards them as fast as we need to. I mean, you know, there is an emergency ahead of us, and we're just kind of ambling along, making small changes. So, yeah. I don't think we're resisting solar energy or wind energy or conservation or efficiency, but we just are not, given what is in front of us in terms of climate change, given what's in front of us in terms of, of countries that don't benefit from oil, that get invaded from it, that suffer poverty or war, we're not going fast enough. One of the, one of the things that I, that I, the dichotomies in my book that I kind of bring out was that Firdos Square, when the statue came down, the Marines who took it down, who I'd been with for several weeks invading Iraq, um, I got to know them very well, and I've remained friends with them, and I've visited them at their base in 29 Palms, not far from here. And so people here know, if you drive out to 29 Palms, towards Palm Springs, you pass through the San Gorgonio Pass. And what's in the San Gorgonio Pass? A giant wind farm. Now, you know, wind is not the answer or anything like that, but it was just one of the kind of the great paradoxes, but also moments of hope in a sense that I was going to visit my marine friends at 29 Palms, the guys with the howitzers, brave, patriotic men, who nonetheless had been involved in this war that was to a great degree about oil and were part of the military that supports the system that we have that's based on oil. But I had to pass through the San Gorgonio Pass and see these... To, aesthetically, for me, I think windmills are actually really intriguing and beautiful. And, 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 and so it was like seeing a vision of the future, not just windmills, but obviously just non-oil forms of energy, but then also going to visit this vision of the past, which are these great men at the Marines. But even they kind of understand that, look, you know, we're dying. They're being killed themselves in order to protect some of our sources of oil or guarantee them or whatever. And, and they're not necessarily enthusiastic about going ahead the same way in the years ahead. So everybody's kind of, I think, realizes that, yes, we need to do this, but it's just doing it. You know, looking at sacrifices that we think are sacrifices, changing lifestyles, et cetera, and, and actually realizing, well, actually, maybe those aren't sacrifices, because maybe we'll actually, and I'm beginning to make a speech here, so somebody please give me the hook, <laughs> but just understanding, that actually, maybe these sacrifices aren't going to hurt so much, that maybe we're going to feel better about ourselves, and maybe we're going to actually be more comfortable and, and feel better about the lives that, you know, our children and et cetera will live, and so that actually these sacrifices feel good. 
Hi, I'm Gail Saunders. Um, my question kind of piggybacks on the other question. If oil is causing all these problems, then why didn't they make these changes sooner? Why didn't we go green sooner? Why weren't, you know, I know that they have the tech, do they have the technology to make cars that will run on solar power only or water or, you know? They're working on, I mean, you know, they're working on, there's a, there are races across America every few months or whatever with solar powered cars or whatnot. They're definitely working on that. But, you know, one of the th reasons that we've become addicted to it is because, I mean, oil is an incredibly remarkable substance. I mean, it's not just the gasoline in our cars. I mean, you know, for those of us who are wearing polyester clothes tonight, it's in your clothes. You know, it's in the, the fertilizers that, that our plants grow out of. It's in the toothpaste. It's everywhere. It's everything. It, and it has this, you know, amazing amount of compressed energy in it that no other form of, of energy has. You know, you can put it in your gas tank and drive. You can put it in a plane and fly. And you can't do that with like a plane that's filled with, with electric batteries or whatever. It won't get off of the ground. So one of the reasons that, that we're addicted to it is because it is a remarkable form of energy. And, and I'm not against oil. I, you know, there are wonderful things that it can do. There are wonderful ways to use it. But we're using it in such kind of profligate, wasteful, destructive ways that we should make it part of a mix rather than just being the foundation that we stand on. And so I think we have to just get over kind of the, the, the magic that oil is and not waste the magic of it and, and not kind of therefore do some of the negative things that are associated with it. There are other reasons too, but you know, we'll, we'll talk about it afterwards or if somebody wants more, we'll, we can do more on it. Good evening, my name is Stephen Huey. Rapidly growing economies, China in particular, are increasing the worldwide demand for oil and are making more and more contracts with other countries, Nigeria right. in particular, as you, right. as you brought up. Um, how does the increasing concentration of multiple actors in these origin locations of oil further complicate the curse that you've been talking about um, tonight? It's, it's really quite something. When I, when I was in Equatorial Guinea, for example, okay, West African country, one of the countries where Chinese companies are becoming active, trying to get contracts. When I checked into my hotel, um, I was given two ways to pay the bill because at the time, it was hard to do credit card payments in Equatorial Guinea. It was a couple of years ago. It's still a little bit difficult. But I could pay in cash. It was a small hotel, but it was expensive because there weren't many hotels in Malabo, the capital. Or I could transfer the cost into a bank account in Shanghai. And then all of a sudden, a light bulb, when they told me this, went off over my head because the hotel was called the Dynasty Hotel. <laughs> the receptionist was Chinese, and the food that I would be eating that night in the hotel was Chinese, even though I was in West Africa. There were roads that were being built by Chinese companies that I drove on. And so there is this kind of like new great game of competition for access to these resources. And it's problematic in so many ways because on the one hand, it it's pits us against China and it pits us against India or whatever. And, and, and that could be unhealthy because then it can become a race to the bottom in terms of like, okay, we want the contract so badly that we will make whatever compromises are necessary. And there's some compromises that American companies are not even allowed to make, operating in Sudan, for example. But I think in some ways, the Chinese threat, and I, I'm using that phrase intentionally because I think it's sometimes portrayed as a threat, kind of like a red peril. And I think that it's convenient because then it kind of like, authorizes us or justifies us for scrambling even harder than the Chinese and other new consumers of, of energy are because if we don't get it, they'll get it. When I was in Ecuador, there was an American executive who I talked to and there was a scramble to try to get access to this part of the Amazon in Ecuador that had not been um, extracted, that had not, there had been no oil drilling going on there, but oil was expected to be there. It was a pristine area that I had gone to. And he said to me, look, you know, I, I, I know that people don't want American companies or European companies to go there and extract oil from this pristine area, but if we don't do it, the Chinese will, or the Russians will. And they're not going to do it as well as we do because they don't have the technology we have, which is true. Our technology, American technology, is still better in the oil field than Chinese is. And they don't have the same ethical standards that we have. Now, we don't always abide by those standards, but he was saying that on paper our standards are better. And so I thought that this was very convenient for him and for other executives of that sort to say, look, you know, you may not want us to go there, you know, all that, but if we don't, the Chinese will. And I don't think that's a justification. I think that's in some ways a, a, a red herring, just that's used to kind of justify our continued race, sometimes to the bottom, in order to get access and control of these resources. Hi, I'm Andrew Meyer. And you've answered a lot of questions on supply-side stories with a lot of great analogies and things like that. Do you talk at all about things on the demand side 
and some of the things that are happening with market manipulation, contango, and things like that. Do you have some analogies in that area? Because that also must be having a big effect. Well, this is, in, in terms of manipulation, this is what he's referring to is, is, you know, hedge fund speculative money that goes into oil, not to purchase it and use it, but just as an investment vehicle. And then, of course, also, uh, these are the intricacies of, 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 of oil and how it gets to us. You know, from the moment that, let's say, an oil tanker leaves Nigeria, actual ownership of that tanker, of that oil, can change 15 times or 20 times more as kind of one company purchases it from another, one trader sells it from, to, to another. And each time it changes hands, of course, the price goes up somewhat. And that leads to higher prices than, let's say, the market without that manipulation would have. I don't think, however, that that's why oil cost as much as it did or why it costs as much as it does now. It's part of it, but I think there is basically also a supply-demand problem. So those things are happening. They accentuate the price volatility, but I don't think they're like the only cause of it. Hi, my name is Robert Williams, and I want to congratulate you for getting kicked out of Equatorial Guinea. That's a badge of honor. But, there are uh, only two countries I've been kicked out of, um, Equatorial Guinea and Serbia. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm still welcome here. Okay. Good, good. Two weeks ago, President Obiang was in um, Houston to open up a new consulate of the government of Equatorial Guinea in Houston. And while he was there, he was at the, the Baker Institute at Rice University and gave a speech and... Uh, promised, in fact, that oil revenues would be going to drinking water and education and health care and, and, and so on to improve the lives of the people of his country. Um, and Equatorial Guinea is also a candidate member of the Extractive uh, Industries Transparency Initiative. Is, is this all a sham in your view? Is, is there any possibility that uh, there has been a change of heart and there were, there's a new day in Equatorial mm -hmm. Guinea about oil revenues? Some of, a small part of it is real. Money is finally beginning to trickle down. I think partly as a result of attention and pressure that like, you know, hey, you can't just put all this money into bank accounts and do nothing. I mean, I went, when I was there, I went to hospitals that had like no medicine and there was $800 million sitting in secret bank accounts. And some of that money is now indeed trickling down in ways that weren't happening when I was there a few years ago. However, it's still not being spread the way it needs to be spread, the way it should be spread. And you still have more than ever almost, or just as much as ever, a dictatorship. Last election, ruling party, 97% of the vote. And Obiang is not that good of a leader. So you can say economically, incomes are beginning to rise, and that's good, but they're not rising as they should, given the amount of oil money that's there. Political liberty is not rising. And American government will say, it's getting better, it's getting better. And, you know, maybe in very small ways it is, we're still in bed with this terrible man who we shouldn't be in bed with, and, and we should be working actively to try to get somebody better in power. Not violently, not invading, not staging coups, but we should be friendlier with the people who are trying to replace him peacefully than with himself and his regime. Thank you all so very much. <laughs>